Hi there and welcome back to The Real Estate Renovators, the show that's designed to help real estate agents navigate through the proverbial shitstorm. And today, like always, I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Chanel. Hi, everyone. The big man, Rexy. Hey, guys. And Pistol Pete. Hi, everyone. <laughs> Good to see you, Pete. And I don't want you doing what you did last episode, looking at me with those bedroom eyes. I think that's nothing but inappropriate. Uh, so I've got. <laughs> so today, like always, we're going to have a little bit of fun. And today, we thought we might talk about growth. It's a it's a big area in most businesses, and let me tell you, it's a bit of a conundrum right now. I mean, it's pretty challenging, particularly in Victoria. Um, and maybe by the time this goes to air, maybe our leader might let us step outside our front freaking doors. But but growing a business in any time is challenging, but particularly now, I think we need to have a few different skills. And I want to talk about how do we grow our business. Now, there are some business owners out there, Chanel, that aren't interested in growth, but I'd argue that if you're not growing, potentially you're going backwards. And so whether it's growing with your revenue, whether it's growing with the number of agents that you employ, or whether it's your team members and yourself as a leader growing, I think that's all pretty important. And often, you know, when people look at growing a business, Pete, and I know you do a lot of work in this landscape, the first thing that comes to mind is the opportunity to purchase a rent roll or, or a property management business. And I, I know through the work that we've done together, Pete, you can do it right and you can do it wrong. If I was running a, a real estate business and I was looking to take my business to the next level, what are the two or three things that I really should look for in you know, acquiring a rent roll and making sure that I bolt that business on in the most efficient and effective m- manner for my business? I think if you're looking at acquisition as a strategy of growth, it's making sure that that investment is, uh, when you put it into the business, is going to meld and work well. And when I say that is that can your business tomorrow take on, say, 400 managements and actually operate with great customer service? And that's some of the things that people don't prepare for in acquisition. They look at, you know, can I get it financed? But they actually don't know, don't look at what their business is going to look like from 400 to 800 overnight. And, yeah. you know, it actually puts that, that investment at risk, you know. So that's, that's probably the number one thing. I think just on that, Pete, what happens is that, yeah, right, what, when, when people look to buy a business, they'll get their lawyer involved. They'll get their accountant involved and they really just look at the numbers. But making a, a bolt-on or an acquisition really mould and, and gel, as Pete was saying, is pretty important. Chanel, you, you would see this time and time again. I know you do a lot of work as like a virtual HR consultant to a lot of the clients that you work with. When you bring two cultures together, mm. can you talk about the, the changing d- dynamics that exist in those situations? You know, if you were to acquire a rent roll that already has a property management team in place, is that sort of what you're referring yeah, yeah, to? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I think it's, it really comes from the leadership. Like they need to understand that they're now joining a new business. There's new sort of values in place. Um, a lot of the time what I have seen is when they acquire a rent roll that has property managers in place, eventually and unfortunately those team members do eventually leave mm. because they've been so used to a particular kind of culture or a way of doing things that when they join a new business, they no longer sort of align with the values of that business. Mm. Now, this has been sort of years and years of seeing this happen. It, it, it's a very frequent thing to sort of occur. So I think if you are sort of acquiring a new rent roll that already has property managers in place, you need to be prepared that 
they might not sort of last the course of mm. joining a new team to be prepared to sort of rehire a property manager for that particular portfolio. And sometimes, Rex, in your experience, sometimes when we're looking to acquire uh, a rent roll or a PM business, sometimes one of the reasons that we do that is we want to get the gun people that are working there. Mm. Sometimes we just want the numbers and we want the landlords. And so I guess depending on the strategy, and you know, I've worked with clients who particularly targeted certain rent rolls because they wanted to get those property managers in their business to help grow their team members. And I guess it just depends on the strategy. It does. And you've got to make sure all your, I don't want to sound like a lawyer, but all your agreements align with what you want. Mm. Just sorry to uh, trouble you there. You are a lawyer, Rex. So I know, I'm, I'm trying to make myself sound. <laughs> I'm not trying to bore the audience either. Can I ask you a question, Rex? Just a, a side note. It's true that once somebody becomes a qualified lawyer, they get the initials LLB after their name. They get LLB after they finish their law degree. Oh, right. So now, is it true? Now, I've heard that LLB, depending on what school of thought that you adopt, it, it either stands for Bachelor of Laws uh, in, in Latin or low life ba- basketball player. No, no, no. <laughs> Just a little, little lawyer joke. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm a CPA, remember, car parking attendant. Uh, no, so we. What can we do? What protections can you put in place? So let's say you, you do acquire, you know, a big rent roll. It's, it's a big spend. And I know the banks, are depending on which uh, financial institution that you talk to, will give you, you know, 60, 70% of the value of the rent roll and you can sort of maybe secure it against your business or whatever. What securities can you put in place? Because that sometimes is a big spend. How do you protect yourself? It's a massive spend. and It's a multiple of revenue from three or more years. So mm. you need to make sure whatever your acquisition is, you're protecting yourself, not just from day one, but for the next three years, because you're basically paying the revenue for the next three years mm. up front. Um, to do that, you need to have a really sound due diligence provision in there to make sure anything you've acquired has done your, they've done the right inspections, they've got the right um, authorities in place, because otherwise at settlement, those landlords may not go through with you. Mm. There also should always be a retention period um, mm. and a ret- retention percentage. That means at settlement, you've acquired all the properties, but a percentage of the purchase price is put away in a trust account for a period of time. That way, if any of the landlords do transfer across but drop off in that period, you're not paying for it. And how much is that usually? What, what do you usually suggest? <sighs> Depends who we ask for. <laughs> <laughs> the buyer or the seller. Yeah. Let's say you're asking for the buyer. For the buyer, we want as much percentage as we can get away with mm. and for as long a period as we can mm. get away with. But, I mean, rule of thumb, what can we... Rule just... of thumb, 20, uh, 20% for 90 days to six months, you're doing well. Yeah, right, okay. And if you're the seller? <laughs> if you're the seller, you Zero. want 10% for 30 Eight days. Minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, look, obviously, one way to grow your business is to acquire. Um, have you seen, um, in your experience, many people looking to buy sales offices? Not much people looking to buy sales offices. Um, the, the value of a sales office is not, you can't really borrow against it either mm. because, mm. you know, an, an authority may not last. Uh, mm. You know, they've got a 30-day period that may not last. Mm. Um, there is a value to sales offices, um, and, but that's more internal. Yeah, right. And uh, t- typically, if you want to get a good sales team, you you know, engage somebody to go and headhunt or you try and recruit a good salesperson to come into your organization, Pete, uh, and what help. I would recommend, sorry to cut yeah. you off, what I would recommend and what we'd recommend to some of our clients is to have a structure in place where the sales business and the property management business are separate business, separate entities. Mm-hmm. So that way you can promote a salesperson into your 
um, and make them a director and a shareholder of the sales business, but not the property management, because the property management is where the values are. Mm. It also provides a level of asset protection within the business. So if something goes wrong with sales, it doesn't affect the property management. So from a legal perspective, Rex, I, I get that, right? and I think that makes sense. And you know, we often do that with the clients that we work on together, and I've even structured my business that way. Let me talk about the inherent dangers of that. Does that, Pete, in your experience, create or can it have a tendency to create a division within the organisation? Or is it just something that you keep behind closed doors? No one really needs to know that there's separate companies or separate trusts. Pete, what, what's your experience? Absolutely concur with Rex. Having two different um, entities owning the two different divisions makes extreme sense when transacting rent rolls. Um, and also from a P&L point of view, so looking at from a profit and loss, um, when you're running two companies, uh, what, what the absolute, absolute advantage of that is that you know exactly the profit line from both divisions. Um, and, you know, when you're looking at those expenses, dividing those divisions percentage-wise between the two so that you can actually look at where your profit's coming from. Um, you know, so that is one thing that absolutely um, wrecks you spot on there. So, okay, so when we talk about growth, and I know you're on your fifth glass of champagne, so <laughs> Chanel, I, I do appreciate it. And Glass of bottle. Yeah, no, no, it's a fifth glass and it's uh, 9.30 a.m., which I think is a great effort. Um, no, I'm only joking, Chanel. Six. Uh, <laughs> when we talk about growing our business, look, obviously everyone knows that you can acquire a, a rent roll to grow your business. I want to talk about some of the more fundamental ways. And, you know, Chanel and I have worked together for a long time. Um, and uh, I've seen what she's done with one of our mutual clients and how she's helped them grow their business. And I think, you know, like for mine, it's, it whets my appetite. Uh, not the fact that she just uh, sculled that vodka red bull. <laughs> no, but what whets my appetite is that there's not a much, not a much. Not too much. Uh, there's not much spending involved around, you know, the growth piece and growth of your team. Chanel, can you just share with us a story? And we won't mention uh, the name of the business, although yeah. they definitely want the plug. Uh, no, but let's, let's talk about the strategy you went through. And I think you took that business from a team of 40 to, yeah. to what? Uh, over 100. Yeah, wow. And how long did that take? Uh, we did that over a period of just under eight months from memory. No, yeah, just under eight months. We took it from 40 to 100, and that was across rental sales um, and administration. So so that's, I mean, rapid growth. I mean, great fees for you and your business, no doubt, I mean, which is why you bought that new apartment. Uh, but, no, but, but how did you go about it? What was the, you know, the first step? And, I mean, you've more than doubled the size, Pete, of a, a team in less than a year. I mean, there's a lot of stuff involved with it. So tell me, how did you go about it? Step one, I mean, I worked really, really closely with, there was multiple directors of this particular business and I worked very closely with them. So first we designed a budget. So what is your recruitment budget and what are we working sort of within the realms of? So once we sort of had that budget down pat, we sort of went to, okay, where do we need to grow? What sort of, like we had plans in place. Um, from there, we had a really clear headhunting sort of structure. Mm. And I think the, the, the biggest problem I face in recruitment and I guess what, what sort of frustrates recruiters is that I'll get a call at least once a day from the new agency saying, oh, you know, I need three sales agents. Like that's all well and good, but I need to know what, what will attract that agent to your business? Like mm. how, what, 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 what can we offer in terms of mm. commission? You know, what, what, what's going to draw them to that business? Um, with this particular business, I had really sort of clear instruction about the commission structures, the culture, the team, where the, the vision of the business and where it was going. Mm. Um, and then we had sort of like there was no one off off bound. So I could contact any agency in that area. 
Um, I also signed on exclusive with them. So I was their exclusive recruiter, which meant that they weren't going to anyone else. And I was working exclusively on behalf of them. So I guess from there, you know, the headhunting strategy was pretty sort of elaborate um, in terms of, you know, who we wanted to attract and how we were going to attract them. So from there, I guess, you know, I can do my job and and get as much talent across to them, but they need to close those deals. And I think what people don't realize is that time is of the essence when it comes to people moving in real estate. If they've made a decision to move, it'll be about a seven-day turnaround. They'll want a job within seven days. So we're dealing with, you know, people that are really sort of high-performing that want to make decisions rapidly. Mm. So they, these directors were all sort of um, aware of how I went about things, mm. but I trusted them to close the business as well. Can I talk to you on, you said there were multiple directors. How many directors of that business? Four. four. Oh, sorry. I mean, there was, there's four named directors and mm. then there was two sort of silent directors involved mm. or, or non-named directors involved there. When you say silent, they speak or? Yeah, no, no, no. actually, yeah. <laughs> there was a situation where... Um, Reminds well, one's left now. They, they were auctioneering quite heavily and then... Yeah. Spent, you know. It reminds me of Jay and Silent Bob. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that. Uh, so uh, one of the challenges that uh, I've seen and the work I've done with Pete um, in the boardroom, Pete, is you know, too often if you get a group of four or five uh, people that come together as a collective and typically, you know, if I look at a typical real estate business, typically they're all middle-aged men. Um, and they often think the same. There's this notion that we can fall into this trap of groupthink, right? And and what groupthink is is you know the one with the loudest voice. You know, people just tend to agree with him or her. And and often that's not the best strategy. Sometimes it's the quiet mouse or the introvert that actually has some really good um, gold nuggets to share, but you know doesn't feel safe to open their mouth. And the other thing, Peter, I want to talk to you about. So I want to touch on that and get your commentary around that and your experience. I know you've done a ton of it. Uh, the other one was around what happens when you don't get consensus. And too often we sit at a boardroom table and we think we have to get 100% consensus. And Rex, I'll get you to talk on this because it's very rare that you're going to get four or five people to agree on everything. So I don't mind asking a few questions and not letting anyone answer them. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to you, Pete. Uh, Let's talk about that group think notion that you work with and, and, and you know, getting that diverse uh, opinion out there. Yeah, and look, um, on the like, negative side of that, you know, sometimes we're, when we're selling businesses, it's exactly for the reason that you spoke about where people can't agree um, and, and it gets to a point where actually it pulls the business apart and we're sort of brought in to transact that business because it's in such a you know, disarray in terms of decision making. But... To get clear decision making in a business that's got accelerated growth, like Chanel's talking about. So that's exceptional accelerated growth. And you can only achieve that over a long period of time and sustained growth at that level if you have a clarity of where you're ending up. And you know, I keep on harping on, on about a strategic plan, but that's the document that actually everyone points north to. You know, when they're making decisions, when they're making hires. They look at that document and say, okay, is that, is that the right decision for where we're going? And, you know, if you've got, say, 10 partners in a business um, and you have a board structure and a decision-making process, you know, that's where a strategic document will actually collaborate and get everyone's input. And you're right, Jason, sometimes it's like eight against two, but it is the majority. So, yeah. Rex, um, th- thanks, Pete. Rex. 
you and I work uh, together on a, uh, a, a one particular, uh, I think there's 10 franchisees mm-hmm. a, a group in Melbourne, and, um, and you uh, quite kindly nominated me as chairman of the board, which is wonderful. Just get Jason to do all the work and Rex charges all the fees, which is, I think, is outstanding behaviour from Rex. Um, no, but Rex, I, I want to talk about the importance of that initial shareholders agreement yep. or unit holders agreement. The things that we put in that talk to majority uh, consensus and full consensus and all that sort of stuff. Can you touch on some of the examples of why you know it's important to get that right at the start, and, and some of the key triggers that should be in a document like that that helps with you know a big decision. Like you think about what Chanel's done, taking forty to over hundred. There's some big decisions that need to be made there. Mm. Chanel's client, I'm fortunate enough to represent them as well, and mm. same with the, the board you're talking mm. about. Mm the franchisor, and both of them would have come to me. Um, they've come as, that was 10, that was six, and I've sat down with them in a two, two, two to four-hour conference mm. and basically come up with their partnership agreement. And their partnership agreement is their rule book on how they function. And I ask them very confronting question: What if someone goes, to, goes for a divorce and drags the whole business through family corporacy? What if someone wants to leave? What if someone gets reprimanded by consumer affairs for breach to a state agency act or whatever the case may be. And we talk openly and transparently mm. about everything mm. and we reach decisions. And it also decisions about decision-making. And decision-making, when I speak to my clients, is about there should be like three or four different types of decisions. Certain decisions should be unanimous. So if you're going to close down the whole business, everyone has to agree. Mm. Most decisions don't need to be that. Yeah. Most decisions need to be on a majority point of view or um, and how that majority is. Is it 75%? Is it 50%? Is it 51%? And then certain decisions should be day-to-day operational stuff that you don't need to call your mm. partners if you're going to spend $1,000. Mm. So you put monetary caps on these certain decisions and you have very specific provisions about other things. Like if you want to join a new franchise or whatever the case may be, if you want to introduce a new partner. And you, and you talk it out through that long period and it's, mm. it can be confrontational and I've guaranteed every time I've done it, they've gone, we never thought about that. Mm. It's good to talk about that mm. because you talk about things that they're not expecting. Most of the time there's a dispute or misunderstanding. It's not from bad intentions. It's they thought this is the right thing and the other person thinks this is the right thing. Mm. Everyone's got most of the time good intentions when they enter into these things, but the disagreement comes from they haven't discussed it before uh, and it's too far down the track for them to fix it. By having that agreement in place, um, it's not even a, it's not necessarily about it's your rule book. It's their rule book and how they're going to function amongst themselves. And I, I mean, you often hear the phrase coined, uh, let's get on the same page or sing out the same hymn book. Um, you're saying it's better to do that early doors when we're still in love rather than when there starts to become a bit of a fracture amongst the group. It becomes a, a lot harder, doesn't it? It does become harder, but it's not impossible. And mm. we've done it many times. Mm. The, the example you referred to that... The, 10 officers, mm. um, when we met them, yeah. they, were, they wanted to have a punch on at one stage, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, so, but now, mm. 18 months down the track, they're yeah. in such harmony. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah. And it's from that 18 months of, you know, the work you've done predominantly because I'll just pop in and out when I need to. Um, and a bill. <laughs> and, and, uh, I wish I had a bill for a long nah, time. Um, but, you know, it helps. Mm. It brings them together. So, okay. so, wait, so let's wind it back so it's important to have uh the rule book a partnership agreement a unit holders agreement shareholders whatever your structure is it's important to get that right that then talks about the fundamental rules on strategic decisions 
It talks about everything. It talks about distribution profits. When are we distributing profits? It talks about every aspect of mm. their business. And they've agreed to, they've signed off on it, and they can't go back on it. Yeah, okay. Chanel, you, you spoke about, I, I'm really intrigued about, uh, I'm going to use some French as I uh, times up, real set of good, honest iron balls to grow a business. And I don't need to know that's politically correct. I don't think it is. But you know, <laughs> let, let's, maybe that might get edited out. Um, so, so Chanel, to grow a business from 40 to 100 team members in less than a year takes a whole heap of courage pills. And I know you think I was going to say something else. Um, and surely they didn't get that 100% right at the start. I mean, I refer to it as a time that was BC, which is before Chanel. Um, no, they didn't yeah. get it right. <laughs> AC, which is after Chanel, um, they definitely got it right. And then look, I mean, we're still dealing with turnover and I'm still growing their business. Mm. And it's a, it's a, it's a very long standing relationship. Mm. But I think what makes it easy for me to attract talent is that I know their business inside and out. Mm. I know the, the team members very well. I know the directors very well. I know how to attract talent. I know what's happening in their market. Mm. So they're continuously growing and they're continuously going to be an attractive brand to a lot of talent on the market mm. because their reputation now is that they're, you know, they're, they're strong, they're large, they're sort of that invincible and they own majority market share in the area. So we've taken them from a business that were already high performing, increased their market share, and now talent's actually attracted to that business yeah. without me having to tap them on the shoulder. One of the, one of the first books I read uh, when I went into business uh, is a book called First Break All the Rules. And it was written by, uh, you know, uh, Morgan Gallup Poll. That organisation wrote it. And one of the things that they spoke about fundamentally was uh, two things. First, don't treat everyone the same. Your team members, treat them differently because everyone is different. And I read this book 23 years ago. Um, well, I read most of it, you know, sort of sped read it, lose a bit of attention along the journey. No, so one was don't treat everyone the same, treat them differently. And the other one was that they surveyed some astronomical number, maybe, maybe 5,000 managers in the United States. And they wanted to articulate what are the key drivers for employee performance. And they listed from one down to 20. And the first two made up 80% of the respondents' uh, answers. And the first one was, I know what's expected of me at work. And the second one was, I have the tools and resources at my disposal to be the very best I can be. Fourth or fifth was how much I get paid. Now, that was 23 years ago, black and white TV and all that sort of stuff. The world has changed a little bit. Um, but there's often, I see this push, Chanel, and actually Pete did it with one of his clients that spoke about the employee value proposition. You know, you keep talking about what is attractive at your organisation to bring people into the business, you know, and we speak about culture and, you know, really what does it look like and all that sort of stuff. But that whole employee value proposition, if you come and join us, this is what's available to you. Because let's, let's face a few facts. Working in the real estate industry, you work damn hard. You work Saturdays, right? Sometimes so, Sundays. Sometimes Sundays. You're doing inspections at six or you know appraisal six seven p.m. It's not a. It's not like you know you in this penthouse working from ten till three on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I don't work till three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't forget the two hour lunch in there. So this is where I mean, sorry to cut you off, Jess. This is where sort of like brand is really important. Like let's mm. let's say for example. If I was to say, hey, do you want this Louis Vuitton bag or do you want this John Smith bag? Everyone knows Louis Vuitton. So it's an easier sell. It's an easy, like once a brand is premium and it's well known, people are attracted to it. Mm. So you can grow it. You can develop it. 
Whereas it's harder when it's a brand that no one knows or no one sort of it doesn't have any recognition. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Or am I just too many families? That... <laughs> brand is important, like the culture and, and what that brand represents. When you're working for a, you know, a Ray White or a, like everyone knows that brand. Well, no, it makes perfect sense. And people should, I mean, franchise is probably the biggest in real estate than any yeah. other business yeah. structure. Uh, any professional services. And I think having that recognition of a brand, the yeah. client thinks it's not a little franchise. They think Ray White or whatever the brand is, yeah. that's a big brand. Big brand it yeah. gives you that recognition straight away by joining a franchise. And that's why the appeal of joining a franchise. Is. Exactly. But even not even franchise, if we look at sort of, I shouldn't name names, but say like, you know, Noel Jones, Gary PR. Mm. I don't know if Noel Jones is a franchise or it Gary PR. They're a multi-office network, mm -hmm. but they're yeah. a franchise. Um, you know, they're attractive because people know them. They've got the recognition or they've got a premium name or they only or Kane Burton only sell over a million dollar properties. Mm. Like you want to join, people want to join or businesses grow when they've got the right sort of reputation and brand name behind them as well. Let me challenge you, uh, Chanel, and I like to do that, particularly six champagnes in. Um, let's, I think authenticity is, uh, is, a, is one of the most important behavioral traits that you can have. And I concur that if you've got a big brand, Pete, and your organisation is strong and you're big, what happens when you're small? Because you can't portray that image. Like, but you can. Oh, big Rexy, the lawyer jumps yeah, in. Yeah, no, but you know, you can. I can set up an. I won't, but I can set up a real estate office tomorrow and join a franchise, and then I've been seen as a big franchise name, mm. uh, and that's what the appeal for a franchise would be. Mm. I can grow my business and get that recognition and brand recognition mm. by, if I open a burger store and I called it Rex's Burgers or I went and joined a franchise I had a McDonald's, mm. you would see me differently. Mm. And it's the same with real estate. Now, that's a very good point and I'm just disappointed that you were right. I was hoping you were wrong. Um, Pete, uh, what about the boutique real estate business that doesn't want to be part of a franchise group, wants to be independent? What sort of uh, authentic traits can they share with their prospective team members so that you know it's still an attractive enough organisation that people really want to come and join? Yeah, absolutely. You once upon a time, you know, the better option was to go to a franchise because what franchises brought was stuff that was unavailable to the boutique agency. But the introduction of technology, you know, all those sort of things, social media. Um, you know, the ability to market yourself without having a, a marketing department, you know, that has really changed the landscape between boutique to franchise groups. Um, you know, with, with boutique agencies attracting talent, um, it just really comes back to, you know, actually giving people a career path. You know, if you can actually so, show someone that you're actually invested in them and where they want to go, it, it doesn't really matter about the size. You know, it's about them and, and their journey and their success supporting your success. So, you know, I, I, the, the relationship between large and acquiring good talent, I don't think there's, it, it's not a symmetry. You know, it's not, not a, an exact science that because you're big, you're going to get the best talent. I'll draw on that with, with Pete. I think that social media and boutique businesses have gone sort of hand in hand the last two years. So I can see some small businesses, like small in number, huge on social media. And I think that they don't need to follow sort of franchise rules and franchise agreements. They can sort of cater their, you know, create a business that is completely unique to a franchise and has a, a point of difference in the market. So 
touching on that, no, you don't need to be a franchise to grow your team to, you know, large sizes, but you need to have a point of difference. And I think all businesses need to have a point of difference to attract talent. What I'm finding right now with candidates that I speak to is, well, what's different about this branch now? What's different about this business? And people want to join a business that has a unique twist to it. So, I mean, I agree with you there, Pete. Boutique businesses, particularly in the last sort of couple of years, have really sort of come up the ranks to being attractive businesses for people to join because they've got a slightly unique or, mm. you know, a, a different feel to them than just sort of your standard franchises. So I definitely agree with you on, on that point. Pete. Is it a point of difference or is it just their marketing? marketing. They're so powerful about their marketing through social medias Absolutely. and other aspects that probably wasn't available five, ten years ago. Yeah. But now I'm not sure they're necessarily that much different to a normal agency, but they're very active on their socials and the like. So, I mean, when you think about it, real estate, you're a business within a business. When you're mm. a real estate agent, you are running your own business within a larger business. Mm. So you've got, you've got two options. You can join a really sort of well-known franchise brand and build your name up with it with sort of a leg up with everyone knowing that brand. Or you can join a boutique business and create your own sort of identity, you know, your own sort of unique marketing strategies. You don't sort of have to follow a franchise agreement. Mm. So it comes down to the individual person and what they want to do or where they see their own sort of personal business aligning. You know what I find interesting when it comes to marketing and what we're talking about, we're not only just talking about marketing our organisation to get new clients, uh, new vendors or new landlords, but we're also marketing the organisation to make it attractive enough to get key team members in our business. Because one of the challenges that I'm faced with that I see when I meet other business owners is too often they look at their business through the lens of the business owner, right? So, um, you know, the lawyer speaks like a lawyer. The clients don't even understand what she or he's talking about. The accountant that talks about Division 7A, contingent liabilities and balance sheets and people are like, bah! you know, <laughs> and, you know, and so, you know, they're running off and doing this marketing campaign that they think is awesome and it's getting the accountant all excited or it's getting the recruiter excited or it's getting the lawyer really excited, but the customer doesn't really give a, a firecracker about and, and I think when we talk about point of difference, I think if, if a business owner can speak the language of the customer, you know, we, Pete and I go off, at, I know Pete loves uh, Dr. Stephen Covey. He talks about the end in mind and, and Covey talks about seek first to understand another person before you expect her to understand you. If we can have the narrative when we're communicating in our marketing structure in a language, whether it's the team member that we're trying to recruit Pete and we're showing them the career path, or whether it's the vendor or the landlord in a language that they get and they can relate to. I mean, I think that's so much that's so much more powerful than just social media, social media, social media, look at me. But I think it should be authentic. Yeah. You shouldn't fake it. You should be really you. Because if you're portraying something that's not you, you're going to get caught up. You can't maintain that. And if you do maintain the talent or the vendors, they'll catch on pretty quickly that you're not being authentic in your marketing mm. because once they work with, within your organization or engage you, they'll mm. realize. Yeah. And then you're going to lose that client or the employee forever. So to portray yourself as something that you're not, I don't think is a good thing. I tend to agree with that. And, you know, in Australia, we have this bloody notion that we've got to keep up with the Joneses. You know what I mean? And there's nothing better than someone that's authentic, that's real, that's got a drinking problem, you know, these sorts of <laughs> things. I mean, Chanel, you own that, man. You got to be. But you know what, as well, I think when we're looking at real estate agencies, every agency is in a different market. So you've got Werribee, you've got, you know, Thomastown, you've got South Yarra. So each agency is in a different area that's reflecting a very different demographic. So when, mm. you know, when I'm looking at my recruiting, 
am I going to recruit an agent that that's killed it in South Yarra that's going to kill it in Epping? Mm. Like, no, it's mm. very different markets. And it's the same with the branding and the way that they market it. Like, real estate agencies need to understand that, you know, I've got clients that are in, say, suburban markets trying to act like South Yarra agents. Mm. Like, that's not, that's not going to attract your talent. Like, mm. you've got to attract what's, you know, what, what your business and what the demographic of that business sort of reflects in the market that it is rather than this cut and copy sort of, marketing that they see every other agency do you know don't don't try to be a, a louis vuitton when you are in i shouldn't know cut this out no 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 don't cut it out we know that you're all about handbags <laughs> i feel chanel if i could tell you something honestly i feel you're trying to send a subliminal message to your other half that you need another handbag that's what i'm hearing <laughs> I, I mean, have, I can read I have one coming. I have a Balenciaga <laughs> coming next week. He's in trouble, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 a it's a truven... You know what, though, Jess? I always say my mum didn't name me Kmart. She named me Chanel for a reason. So I'm just reflecting my own demographic here. All right? The third person work from you, Chanel, has been nothing short of outstanding. There was the BC and AC before Chanel and after Chanel, and my name ain't Kmart, big boy. <laughs> it's uh, bling bling. Um before we finish up, and I Can know... Can I add something before we do finish up? And yeah. just going off of what Chanel said, I think um, your brand should represent, obviously, what you said with the clientele you're attracting. Yeah. But what you taught me, or one of the most seminars that I attended, mm. was that people will work with you when they like you. Yeah. Um, and if they like you from what you portray to them and it's authentic to you, mm. they'll want to work with you. I, I appreciate you letting me into that, Rex, because I saw that you could tell I was getting a little bit tired. Now, yeah. uh, look, and this is an area that is really Pete's genius, you know, and I, the, for the last three or four years of he and I working together, he's, he's been nothing short of outstanding in this space. And we have conversations around, I believe, um, that there's typically three ways people do business with you or three reasons why people will do business with you. The first, as Rex mentioned, is that people do business with you because they've met you and they like you or they, they, they can resonate with you as a person. And I know, you know, the way Rob and I carry on, we, we don't, we're not suited to everybody, right? But the people that we are suited to, they genuinely sort of like us. The second, and one of the more powerful ways to grow your organisation or your business or your brand is to be referred by a trusted source. And particularly in Australia, you know, that whole referral piece is massive. And, you know, even if you look on a global scale, um, and I know it's not that relevant at the moment because no one's allowed to get on an aeroplane, but if you look at the power of TripAdvisor and when, you, you know, you're choosing your holiday destination, you're taking random quotes and opinions from people that you've never met before, but this woman in Auckland, New Zealand, said you should stay in this hotel in Paris. Shit, I'm staying there, right? We In, in Australia, we don't like hey, I'm the best accountant, come and see me. People go, you're up yourself. But if Rex goes, hey, this is my accountant and he's the best I've ever seen, people go, wow, I want to go and see that yeah. guy. Right? Yeah. And then the third one is that if you're seen, if you can articulate that you are a leader in your industry or an expert in the field, a key person of influence or a thought leader. Pete, across your extensive experience about helping businesses grow, not through not just the buying and the selling, what are some of the key things that you've seen that in a marketing strategy that's different across the industry but really gives us that strong cut through? When you're growing a business and you've got your systems and processes so slick that you're actually confident that you can ask the customer for a testimonial, that is when you've got a business that actually almost self-generates new business. So, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, our systems and processes, it's boring. But... You know, 
if you cannot have a customer go through the whole cycle of either a rental process or a sale process uh, without giving you a testimonial, you really need to go back to your processes because having someone else talk about your business is so strong. You know, like, you know, and we do it in our own industry. We talk about ourselves. But, you know, what is more powerful is if I can have a client talk about me or my organisation. So, you know, um, we, we embed a, a six-question program um, in all our clients. And, and it also, when you get a bad feedback, it's actually where you go back to. So it's actually also a way to actually fix things that aren't good in your business. I'd really advocate to the audience to actually consider, you know, a testimonial program within their business because it also helps the marketing, but also helps for your processes. Pete raises a good point because typically at the outset you look at systems and processes and you go, that's as boring as batshit, right? But the point that he raises is very valid, particularly when you're a landlord or, you know, an owner of investment properties. You want to have that consistent experience across the organization. And this is the fundamental challenge that exists for all businesses, that if, if the intel of the IP sits in one of my team members' heads and she leaves, I'm cactus because, uh, you know, I, I can't run my business because Chanel's left, right? But if we can orchestrate a system and process philosophy that is consistent across the customer experience, the team member experience, because that's what we want. We want consistency. And so when we ring up and Chanel's not there, I go, no, 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 I need to speak to Chanel. She's the only person. I mean, if and I, the age-old analogy that's been done to death at McDonald's, it's why a McDonald's business can be run by a 16-year-old kid. Right? If I can just maybe add something there. Um, you know, when you're looking for growth, you know, and we see this a lot in clients coming to us and they're saying, you know, I got to this point and then I went backwards. Um, and we see that time and time and time again. And it, it comes down to actually not having systems and having um, people-dependent business. If those people leave, you don't have actually a business. And, and, and it's, you know, also in property management and sales, um, if, if that customer doesn't have a touch point with multiple people, we actually dub it a hairdresser syndrome. And, and, you know, when you look at, you know, the hairdressing industry, you know, when a hairdresser leaves and they're the only person looks after you when you go to the hairdresser, you walk, right? Mm. How many of us have actually, you know, gone to the next salon because that person? But the hairdressing industry, and we learn from other industries in our consultancy business. So if you look at the hairdressing industry, they now strategically actually get multiple people involved in your service. So that when one part of that service is done by another person, you actually don't feel so, so compromised, right? And, and we use the same analogy in, in real estate businesses. If you only let one property manager look after one landlord, <laughs> that landlord thinks that that's the only person who can look after their property. So we actually defunct the hairdresser syndrome in all the agency we work with and have multiple touch points by multiple people doing great things because they're a specialist in that part of the service. Yeah, no, no, I'm going to come to you on this point. Um, I'm going to address another elephant in the room, which I don't mind doing, but um, I learned early doors, uh, one of the important um, behavioural traits to have in business is to leave your ego at the door. Now, the real estate industry, there's a fair bit of ego. Now, don't get me wrong. This is the pot calling the kettle black. I've got an ego the size of the MCG, maybe a little bit bigger. Uh, and uh, But 
when it comes to business and if you want a harmonious team, you speak so fluently around culture. I think it's important to drop the egos because if the egos are there, they're my clients, right? This is my portfolio, right? That's my listing, right? And this, all this ego, chest beating, look at my car, I got my new GLE 63 and, you know, the Mercs and all this sort of stuff. But if we have a business where we can, I mean, there's a place for ego. Everyone's got an ego, right? Everyone's got one. But if we can, do, for the best part, leave it at the door, that does create that organisation where I can help her out and she's going to help him out yeah. and but we're going to help each other creating out. Creating the team environment yeah. where it's not about individual success, it's about the team success. So if someone does something, you reward it, but you don't reward it that it's your client. It's a team's environment and you make sure it's a team environment in all aspects. I do it with my organisation. The other thing we see that works really well in agencies is actually actually having a board, like a control board in the business. So it actually shows everyone efforts and the collective celebration of a result. Um, and, and so those control boards actually give individuals a, a place to celebrate what their part in the process is being achieved to get the greater result. So, you know, there are some strategic and sort of environmental ways to actually get that collaboration from a data data sort of sense. So I know that will sort of tickle your fancy, Jason, from a numbers point of view. No, no, no. Look, I get excited unnaturally when it comes to numbers, as you know, and, um, you know, uh, which is a bit awkward at times, so <laughs> sleeping with the Tax Act and a few other things. Um, but I'm going to challenge the big man. A friend from Brisbane um, on this one. There is an inherent danger in having a leaderboard up in your organisation if your culture is wrong. Mm. Because we can say, ha Rex missed his numbers again, you know, and I can walk around, you and I are the king and queen. Um, sort of went on a prom date just then. Um, yeah, hey, sorry about that, Chanel. Uh, but, you know, if we're, we're, if we're always winning every month and Rex is struggling, that could have the impetus to bring in a culture that, I mean, I hate to use the word bullying, but, you know, it could be a negative culture. It's, you know what? Personally, I actually worked for a business long before I started Titanium that we had a leaderboard. And the the the, the culture that was trying to be created was this culture of high performance and, you know, mm. whatever. What actually was created was an environment that was extremely toxic where no one wanted to work together. Everyone was in competition with one another because mm. they need to be the top of that leaderboard. Mm. And then we also had a director who looked at whoever was on the bottom of that leaderboard and sort of, you know, and, you know, um, antagonize them i don't want to use the word bully but you know it was very clear that you were at the bottom of that leaderboard mm. so rather than being you know creating an environment where you wanted to perform to you know improve you were under extreme anxiety and pressure mm. to not be on the bottom of that leaderboard and you lost sight of what you were actually trying to do you just didn't want to be at the bottom mm. so personally i don't think those leaderboards work i think everyone should be accountable for where they're at and what mm. they're feeling but you shouldn't be in competition with your team members you should be sort of working together to all you know, all create a high-performing mm. team, not a competitive team. So, if I can add something there, you're absolutely correct. Those toxic environments are created from leaderboards when there's no support and training. Uh, the missing the missing link to the conversation or, or the situation that you explained is people aren't supported with the right amount of knowledge. Now, your business will not grow if you do not have people there willing to take up knowledge. Your business is dependent on how quickly your people can learn. If your people do not want to learn, your business will not grow with those people. And that and that's plus you need to have a you need to have a growth and development strategy from the top down as well. So it's a it's a hand in glove type thing, Pete. 
But if it goes back to the teamwork, so I first time I've heard of this, but if I was there, I would say the top performer has helped work with the bottom mm. performer mm. and goes back and forth. You just want to create that team environment and goes with education and learning and passing on that knowledge. So every month it goes back up and forth. The top works with the bottom, they're there together for the month and goes forward. But you know what the problem is with that in real estate? Because they're commission only. A majority of them are commission only. So they're there for themselves. They're not there to help. But so you, you know create what I mean? a team so environment with they that They need guy. to. That's they right. Need this to. is where real estate, I think in particular as an industry, lacks where they don't have support. You know, mm. you're the bottom performer gets pushed out of the business. The high performer keeps growing. Their fav- like, you know, they're, they're, they're put in sort of a favorite position by the directors. Directors handle listings. They make more money. And the bottom just, they, they just, just keep turning over and they keep yeah. falling over. And that is, I guess, one of the biggest issues that we find in real estate. I, I just love Rex's take on that, though. I, I've got to tell you, that's your personality through and through. That's the vulnerability in you coming out. You just instantly went, top works with bottom. You're the best performer. Help this girl out. Help this guy out. And that's just the lens that you see through. Sorry. So, Jace, if I can add something to that, and you're right, Rex, you know, it's around the culture. And what we're developing in a lot of agencies is the ability to actually enter um, behind someone else within the organisation so that you actually start off with skill sets or, you know, actually utilising the new talent within the business for lower-level tasks to learn the ropes. So you have someone that hits the phones and finds opportunities uh, for the lead agent for a period of time and they do like their apprenticeship somewhat. Now, what that does is actually allows your organisation to go outside of the messy soup of big gorillas in the industry. If you have an organisation that can actually bring someone from an, um, another industry that has awesome, awesome attitude, awesome communication skills, and actually give them the ability to actually enter the industry and learn from the greats, the greats that have got good attitude as well. You know, so... You know what? Can I jump in there, Pete? And that's drawing on that team that we grew from 40 to 100. That's exactly what they did. They didn't just hire, you know, million-dollar writers or six years' experience property managers. Mm. They identified attitude. And then what happened was was we found, you know, teams and teams of these junior agents where we would pair them up with a high-performing agent. They'd be sort of like a PA or cadet that the, the junior agent would be focused on, you know, prospecting, bringing on new business, liaising with buyers, and then we internally grew them within the business. So that's something that I guess these agencies lack as well. They just want to hire experience where they should be looking at culture mm. and how we can support these high performers, but also internally grow that business with, you know, the, the next generation of team members as well. We're in the perfect situation right now where there is so much talent from other industries that have the perfect skill set, the perfect skill set. They just lack the actual industry knowledge. You know, so what I would urge anyone watching this is to create a culture of bringing people that haven't got into the actual industry knowledge but have got the right attitude and actually support them through your organisation to be the next, you know, you know, million-dollar writers for you. I really, I think it's about time we finished up and um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation around the pairing. I, I think, you know, I think all three of you have spoken about this notion of pairing, you know, either a junior person or an underperformer with a, with a, with a senior performer. And I also have gleaned from it, it's, you know, we spoke about it in our first ep and now this ep as well is around creating a culture. And, you know, you kicked it off for us um, after when she spilled the uh, bottle of champagne over before Chanel. 
No, no, no. No, sorry, Chanel, I'm teasing you. I'm Can we just be clear? I'm actually very much um, a health and fitness fanatic yeah. and really like my gym for anyone Ooh. watching. So <laughs> don't listen to the dribble coming out the of this The only one. calories she takes is via alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> The only calories. Vodka has zero calories. That's just a top tip for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, vodka water with some ice cubes, you won't get yeah. any weight. Fit as a fiddle, blind drunk all day long. <laughs> all right, let's wrap it up there. Chanel, thank you, you're a rock star. Big Rex, you're the strongest lawyer in town. And Crystal Peak, the great man, thank you very much. See you next week.